My name is Brad Talley. I am the teaching elder here at Grace Community Church. We are so glad you're here. You don't realize what a miracle this day is. We have 25 women at the beach today, uh, and we pulled this off anyway. I don't know how it happened. Uh, So uh, we are delighted that you're here. If if it's your first time, we're in uh, a study in the book of Hebrews. Whether it's your first time or not, I need to mention to you, Uh, At the end of the service, we're going to do things a little differently. Typically, we have a song that's sort of a song of response to the uh, sermon. But we are going to move right after the benediction directly into a church meeting that the elders and mission team have called to talk about Joe and Stefania Hunziker, who will be with us this next year. Technically, it's Hunziker. Hunziker. He's German. Uh, Swiss German, he's from Switzerland, Germany, but moved to Italy. He's an Italian citizen, Joe, and uh, Stefania from Italy. And I, you cannot imagine what a blessing it is going to be to have them in our midst. I was thinking about it this morning. The same truth is being said in several different ways all through the service on Sunday morning. Uh, some of the things that um, that that Carla and Adam were saying, were directly related to the truth that's in Hebrews 11 this morning. David says things, the music, the worship, everything, prayer time, one after the other, benediction, it all flows together. Now, probably most of you are not anywhere close to as aware of that as I am. Uh, because of just knowing where the sermon is going to be going, and I see the little pieces all fitting together. But you know what? It's all happening in your mind and in your heart, and the Lord takes all of that and, and brings it to life at the appropriate time. One of the great things about saying truth in so many different ways is that certain styles of talking or teaching or singing or whatever impact us in different ways. Sometimes my friend Joe uh, says things that are the same truth that we all know, but he says it because he's in a different culture. He says it in such a way it's like it just comes alive. Scripture comes alive in my heart and mind. You're going to be so blessed to have them here in our midst. And so we need to talk about that. There are some visa issues we need to discuss Uh, Things that we need to do to make sure that they can get their visas, expedite all of that, which is why we've called this very sudden meeting. We almost never do this. Elder rule is a very slow process most of the time in in church. But this time we're speeding it up a little bit because we need to take care of a few things that have sort of come up at the last minute. Well, I want to begin this morning by asking you, if you can recall, I know you can, recall a time in your life when you said to yourself, life has never been so good. This is as good as it's ever going to get. I'm sure that you can also recall a time in your life where you expected life could never get as bad as it has gotten. And you said, I, I just never In a million years, I never expected this. I anticipated this, this, or this. But I never thought this would happen in my life. So what happens when life gets really hard? Well, that's pretty easy in our land, isn't it? When the going gets tough, tough get going. 
Just work hard and it will pay off. That's a nice sentiment, but it's not biblical. Nor is it realistic sometimes. If you're Johnny Erickson Tata and you dive into a lake and you're paralyzed and all of your friends say, just have faith, God will heal you. But you spend the rest of your life a quadriplegic. It doesn't get better just because you make up your mind that things are going to be different if I can just will my mind to it. Most of us aren't faced with that kind of trauma that, that Johnny faced and continues to live with to this day. Most of us tend to attribute tough times to either laziness or to mistakes that we make or to bad luck. And sometimes there are people who sort of help our bad luck along. Some people are opposed to us, someone at the office, someone in the neighborhood who just makes our lives miserable. But for the most part, we look for a better life. We tend to look for better times. We just almost want to will better times on ourselves and to our lives. And Christians are just as committed to making this life better as non-believers are. Maybe more so because we have the Holy Spirit, don't we? And God wants good for us. In fact, God does want something better for us. Jesus is better, we sang this morning. God does want something better for us. And, and he says so in Hebrews 11. If you look at the history of God's people, you'll find times of great blessing and prosperity, and you'll also find times of, of, of deprivation and, and great suffering. Uh, if you examine Scripture more closely, you will discover that believers tend to do better when life is hard than when it's good. When you start reading through Scripture and you're in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and you're reading about all of those kings, these great godly men of God, life got so good that they began to think, you know, I'm sort of responsible for all of this. And then they had bad endings to great lives. Unfortunately, because they thought my own hand has created this peace, this prosperity. Failing to realize that it's only God's mercy that we're not paralyzed like Johnny Erickson Tata. Or that we have enough energy to get out of the bed in the morning. We take all of those things for granted until the time comes that we don't. In our need though, God turns our eyes graciously toward heaven. I can imagine that all of this recurring talk in Hebrews, because remember the context of Hebrews, it's written to people who are about to face intense persecution. And many in this church, made up mostly of Jewish believers, almost certainly in Rome, were, were walking away from the faith. And so whenever you're talking about any passage of Scripture, you have to determine what the context is, if the verses are going to mean anything to you or anything significant. And I know that all of this recurring talk about persecution and need could be quite the downer to the spirit that God has placed in all of us to live and to, and, 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 and to seek challenges, to, to face challenges and to conquer. Indeed, all of the wonderful scientific, technological, and medical advances are nothing more than the effects of the grace and mercy of God. Which is why when someone says, oh, she was healed of her cancer. Well, I'm, you know, she had chemo and that. 
That's all God's doings. God is sovereign. He designed all of this to be in place so that at this moment in time, you could live 20 years longer, 30 years longer because of chemo. Surely, as we talked about last week, we have misused some of God's blessings with technology. And what happens when when we advance so far? We begin to say, I am God. We don't say it outright, but we intimate it and sooner or later we begin to say it outright. Even with the misuses of God's blessings, there is so much in our age for which to be thankful. Did anybody open the refrigerator door this morning and say, thank you, Lord, for refrigeration. (laughs) Thank you for keeping my food cold. You probably got in the car and say, honey, you didn't put gas in the car. Come on. We take a lot of things for granted. Furthermore, our father invites us, in addition to all these great things that are so in our life, he invites us to come boldly before the throne of grace in our hour of need. But we tend to think of our hour of need as Lord, I, I think the refrigerator is going. The Freon is bad. You know how expensive these things are. Lord, please help. I'm so glad I can go before the throne of grace. But the context of Hebrews seems to indicate that our need is holiness. And our need is steadfastness and persecution. This morning is our third and final Sunday in Hebrews 11, where a number of faithful men and women are held up as examples to us as we face trials and opposition uh, to the gospel, which can mean opposition to us. So following the pattern of the last two weeks, we'll list about five big picture truths, remembering that a lot of people make the mistake of looking at Hebrews 11 and say, oh, this example, this example, this, when really the bigger point of Hebrews 11 is that there are ideas about faith that help us understand and it's all connected with everything that has gone before in Hebrews. Uh, Again, so that we can have time at the end of our service to talk about the Hunzikers, I I will not linger on these points. Hopefully they'll serve as guidelines for you and your personal study later in the week. There have been nine big picture truths so far and you can find them online. Uh, In the last two sermons. So we'll begin with number 10. Number 10. Failure is not a reason to abandon your faith. Don't you feel like sometimes you've lost the war when really you've only lost the battle? You just feel like. Quitting, you feel like giving up. We're going to read about Moses this morning, who left Egypt twice. The first time is a great, colossal failure. But 40 years later, as the powerful leader of God's people. Peter denied Christ not many weeks before he became a powerful advocate of the gospel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, many on the list that we find in Hebrews 11 failed, but they repented and they moved ahead in faith. Next, the deeds accomplished by faith say more about a faithful God than they do about faithful men and women, which is why so many people get Hebrews 11 wrong. 
We're going to read about some who by faith stopped the mouths of lions, survived the flames. Who was responsible for those miracles? Was it Daniel saying, stop? No, I think Daniel was probably like this the whole time, you know. He goes in or he's just accepted his fate and he's ready to die. But the Lord shut their mouths. The men and women listed here were commended for their faith because they were willing to die for the truth. When we think about the ways that God has delivered some from sickness, financial ruin, and persecution, and we're still waiting for him to deliver us, we should also remember, by faith, I accept God's plan for my life, realizing that it may be quite different than his plan for my neighbor. I suppose one of the great flaws in Americans is that we so readily compare ourselves with one another. Well, actually, that's human nature, isn't it? I mean, that's everywhere. Everybody, we're always comparing ourselves to one another. When Jesus told Peter that he would die a martyr's death, you know what he did, don't you? He said, well, what about that guy? What about John? And Jesus said, you, you worry about Peter. I'll worry about John. You just follow me, Peter. Follow me. That's when it's important to remember the next truth. By faith, some things are worth suffering for. The primary context for the entire book is a challenge to believe Jesus at the level that you're willing to suffer persecution for your faith. You know, we haven't faced it yet, not, not big time, little ways. Maybe you've lost a job or you were passed over for a promotion. Or maybe people in your neighborhood mock you because of your faith and your stand for the Lord. Unlikely that you've faced anything serious. But what if it were to come to that? And we all know that it may, sooner rather than later. What if it were to come that you had to suffer? Would you... Is Jesus worth suffering for? Is he worth dying for? If you stand for him in the face of persecution, you will glorify God. Look at how many times in the New Testament the word suffering and glory are in almost immediate proximity to one another. They're, they're just right there together, over and over. You hardly ever see one without the other. Occasionally, but hardly ever. Just start noticing <coughs> when you read through the New Testament. Do not walk away from Jesus in your suffering because of the last point. Faith finds its true hope in Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection ensures our resurrection. The point our text will make is that even when people in Scripture, even when we read about people who were raised from the dead, they die again. But Jesus is going to give a better resurrection for all who follow him. It will be a complete, lasting, once and for all resurrection when he returns. We'll be with him from the moment we we die. Who knows what our form will be like. Really, Scripture doesn't say. 
Um, some people speculate, but Scripture really doesn't say what the form will be. But when Jesus returns, all our bodies will be resurrected. Those that have been cremated will be brought back together. We will be with him in a body for eternity. And furthermore, our bodies will be perfect. Forever. So with these five truths in mind, we're going to work our way through the text. We'll only read the first four verses of the text, and then we'll go back and and just sort of hit the highlights of all of it. We could have spent 10 weeks easily in Hebrews 11. I decided let's just try to make it three and get through with Hebrews uh, this summer. Next week in, in the first four verses of Hebrews, or maybe just a few more, but in the first four, especially of Hebrews 12, it really just ties in right. It's an unfortunate chapter break because it, it, it all goes together. So as is our custom, I'll ask you to stand if you would, as the word of God is being read. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Let's pray. Father, uh, there is so much about faith that we don't understand. We don't even know, Lord, sometimes why we have it, except that you put it in our hearts to believe. And we're so grateful that you've called us to be your children. When we look at your word and we see the spectacular, marvelous plan of the gospel. Our hearts are not only filled to overflowing with the beauty of the gospel. But rejoice, our hearts rejoice with the knowledge. That you have made us your children, Father. Speak to our hearts through this remaining portion of Hebrews 11. In Jesus' name, amen. Moses uh, was a great man. I think almost everyone would agree with that. In addition to leading the children of Israel out of Egypt, he wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And as you know, Moses grew up with privilege. He grew up in Pharaoh's household. Just imagine everything that he had. And yet he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That must have been quite painful uh, to her. But there was a more important identification that Moses wanted to express. It was with the people of God. So from His mother's instruction in the earliest years of his life, until he was weaned, which was later than we wean children today. But until he was weaned, and and, and also with the call of God on his life, Moses made a choice. Even though he knew it would mean loss of privilege and ultimately it would mean persecution. I'm sure you know 
people who have walked away from gospel preaching churches because the world's because of the world's disapproval that comes with that territory. You know, somebody recently was saying, "Man, it's pretty bold stuff you preach." I'm like, "Not really." I mean, it's recorded and it's on the internet. I recognize that, but you all agree with me, right? I mean, for the most part, you do. Some people leave and call me names, but look, they're not calling me names. They're calling all of us names. If it's if they leave because they don't like the gospel that is being preached. Even some who believe the gospel are unwilling to bear the shame that is associated with the gospel. So they walk away. Now Moses, he was was willing to be thought a fool by everyone in Pharaoh's court. Because he was identified with Yahweh. Now, I don't know that you'll follow this. I've shared this before, but I'm going to share it again. Yahweh was the name of the covenant God in the Old Testament. Yahweh in the Hebrew. No vowels. It's just the best way to pronounce it. I, you know, the Jews wouldn't pronounce his name. They, they used Jehovah instead of Yahweh. They would, when they would write the name, they would put the pen down and then write it with a different uh, pen and then pick the other pen up and keep writing. I'm, I'm not sure it seems holy, but God identified himself as Yahweh. He wanted his covenant people to know him as Yahweh. I appreciate their appreciation for his holiness. But you get so caught up in form that you miss the point. Yahweh in, in Greek, is tra- the Greek word that translates Yahweh is kurios. Kurios is translated into English, Lord. So, the New Testament authors were making a point when they translated, when they used the word curios, everybody understood that was the word that was used for Yahweh in Hebrew circles. When they used curios for Jesus, they were essentially saying that Jesus is Yahweh. Now, I'm confused, so I know that you've got to be confused. I've confused myself. I had it in a lot fewer words here, and I tried to explain it, and there you go. So if you are confused, but you want to know more about him, make sense of that. Come see me. Yahweh, curious Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. And so when the author of Hebrews 11 says, that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses would have known nothing about the concept of a trinity, but God saw the big picture, and he said, you know what? Moses was looking to Yahweh. Moses was actually looking to Jesus. We know that God spoke with Moses face to face. Very well could have been Jesus at times who spoke with him face to face. The glory of the Father passed by him in Exodus. He was put in the cleft of the rock, Exodus 33 or 34, along in there, in the shadow of the rock to to be protected from the holiness of God. But Moses knew Jesus just like Abraham, Jesus said, knew me in my day. He spoke with me. He saw me. Now, Moses, when you think about him, he failed the first time. And in fact, 
40 years he was away from Egypt. And when God came to him in the burning bush, what did he do? He was licking his wounds still. 40 years later, God said, Moses, I want you to go back down to Egypt. Moses, send somebody else. Moses, go on back. I, I, I don't speak well. Who made your mouth, Moses? Just on and on and on. And yet, God finally pushed Moses back to leadership. St. Augustine said, and I was thinking about this with something Carla said this morning to our friend who was going to Australia, Adam. St. Augustine said, your almighty power is never far from us, even when we are far from you. I'm sure that when the author spoke of the Passover, um, he intended for his mostly Jewish audience to make the connection between the Passover lamb and Jesus, the lamb of God. Jesus died for our sins and it's as if we are delivered from Egypt, take, go, taken right through the Red Sea. And by the way, when this is something important. Again, we don't like to think about these things, but when we do accept it, then we can let a lot of things go in our hearts and minds. God didn't bring judgment on the Israelites. He passed over them. He took them through the Red Sea, but then he poured judgment on the enemies of God's people. And it will always be that way eventually. Which is why when God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It frees us from anger or bitterness or hatred toward those who have harmed us. We can just leave it in God's hands. Let it go. God will take care of his business in his time, in his way. So, in verse 32, the author begins to list all kinds of wonderful things that God did for those who believe. Some of the names, though, uh, remind us of what we discussed last week, God does, just doesn't always do things the way that we do. I doubt many of you would have con- included Samson in your hall of faith, nor Jephthah, who made a rash vow and most likely sacrificed his daughter, put his daughter to death after this great victory because of this foolish vow that he made. And you say, no, 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 if you know the story of Jephthah, some of you are saying, no, nah, I doubt that's what happened. Probably she just lived as a virgin for the rest of her life. She wasn't married. Once again, don't impose your 21st century values on that ancient time. People made a vow. They kept it a lot of times. It's stupid, crazy vows. Because if you're stupid enough to say, I'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house, expecting it to be an animal, you're probably stupid enough to say, okay, I better fulfill my vow or God will destroy me. He clearly didn't have a good conception, a full understanding of God. And he's in the hall of faith, for goodness sakes. I can't make sense of that. Just think about all the things that happen in this list. Daniel and the lion's den. The three, three Hebrews in, in Nebuchadnezzar's, Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. Winning impossible wars. People winning absolutely impossible wars. One of the similarities that you find in this list of people is that God delivered 
people oftentimes at the very last moment. And, and often he did it in ways that clearly pointed only to him. Just think about Gideon. How many did he start off with? 20,000. God whittled him down to 300 and said, now go defeat that army of tens and dozens of thousands. We, what are we? How, it's only God. Think about how important it is to remember, elementary as it sounds, that the mouths of the lions being closed were more about God than about Daniel. I mean, Daniel was faithful, but he didn't put his hands up and stop the lions from crushing him. God shut their mouths and both Daniel and King Darius gave glory to the Lord. In fact, time and again, God gave victory to people in this list that could only be attributed to him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Abednego said, O king, you cause us to bow down to your statue, we won't do it. And our God is able to deliver us from this furnace. And he will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing to that statue. Our hearts belong to God. And when they came through, once again, king, men gave praise to the Lord. One of the troubling aspects of those who seek God's healing in every sickness in our day is that so very often the emphasis is to put, their emphasis is put on one's faith rather than it is on God. Just think about that now. If you have enough faith, you will be healed. So, again, Johnny Erickson Tata clearly doesn't have enough faith to be healed. And I suppose we should just flush everything she said down the toilet. Because if you don't have enough faith that God will heal you, then how do you speak for him? Our text is about to take a turn and point to many who had faith but were not delivered from earthly disaster. We'll begin reading in verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Now remember, Hebrew children thrown in, into the fiery furnace Daniel thrown into the lion's den. They were delivered. Others were not. They were tortured, put to death. Uh, and, and when he says that women receive back their dead by resurrection, he's most likely referring to Elijah, uh, who brought back the son of the widow of Zarephath, and then also Elisha, who uh, brought back from the dead the son of the Shunammite woman. And then the author takes this dramatic Shift. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Um, by the way, others were not spared from death, nor were they raised from the dead. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, all of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in the deserts and mountains and in the den of, and caves of the earth. 
They were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. The NIV says that they might obtain a better resurrection. In other words, the boys who were resurrected from the dead were found to die again. I mean, they were they raised from the dead. It was temporary. And then later they died. Which is always a response to people that say, God heals everyone if you will just pray. Well, we're all going to die. Has anybody ever by faith lived to be 300 years old? Because every year, you know, you just say, by faith, I'm going to live one more year. The resurrection that we obtain when Jesus comes for us will be permanent. The men and women described in these uh, verses did not receive deliverance from death. Why would God heal some and not others? Why would he deliver some and not others? Many of you, uh, many would tell you that God's healing is based on a person's faith. But over and over, we've been thoroughly taught in Hebrews that faith is about the object of our faith, not the quality of our faith. It's not like, okay, well, his faith is better than, than hers because he was here, she wasn't. Most commentators think that in verse 37, the author is referring to Jeremiah when he was stoned to death by the Egyptian Jews. Some, a lot of what's said in, in Hebrews 11, you're not going to be able to find back in the Old Testament. It's tradition that everyone accepted as being truth. Some around the Maccabean uh, time period between the two testaments. Most think that the author was referring to to Jeremiah who was stoned, although a number of prophets were stoned and killed. They were sawn in two, most likely refers to Isaiah. (laughs) And this is pretty interesting when you think about Isaiah, who uh, had the ear of most kings, but then wicked king Manasseh hated Isaiah, issued a warrant for his arrest. They They went to get him. Isaiah was hot-footing it to the mountains where he found a hollow cedar tree. He got in that tree, and when the soldiers discovered him, they sawed the log in two. Isaiah was most likely sawn in two for his faith. So isn't it interesting? Here's something to consider. A lot of the people that we read about in Scripture stood up. And we read about in church history, uh, Polycarp, what a privilege it is to die for my Lord. Don't tempt me to not die for my Lord. And Isaiah tried to hide from an ungodly king, but he was considered faithful. Peter escaped jail with the help of angels, then he hid from Herod. Paul used his Roman citizenship to avoid... (coughs) being tried in Jerusalem, which would have certainly ended in execution. Gideon was fearful. So was Barak. Yet to all of these individuals, God gave the title of men and women of faith. If you look at this list and you think, you know, I just don't measure up to these guys. You, You may be missing the point. If you believe in Jesus as your only hope of salvation, 
then you are considered a man or woman of faith. Teenagers, children, we're all considered men and women of faith if we believe. And you may want to go run and hide in a dark corner. And God says, come on out, come on out. And he pulls us out. And you very fearfully are persecuted. God considers you a man or woman of faith. Now, there's no doubt that the writer will talk about this next week is saying to the ones in in Jerusalem or in Rome, to the church, little church of Jewish believers he was writing to. Look, you haven't suffered like these people have suffered. Hang in there. Have faith. But if you believe Jesus as your only hope of salvation. You are a man or woman of faith. Furthermore, when the world laughs at you or persecutes you because of your faith, God makes a distinction between you and them. It's not up to you to make that distinction and say, oh, I'm better than they are. No, God says the world is not worthy of these men and women of faith. Some who were delivered, some who were not. Let God make the distinction. You were lost before Jesus ransomed you. God will Make that distinction at the end of time between the people who are lost and those who are saved. The world is not worthy of those who believe God in spite of all of its opposition against them. You were tied to Jesus and to all the saints listed in Hebrews 11. He ties us all together in these last two verses. Verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. God made promises to the people who lived before Jesus. And generation after generation after generation, the promises went unfulfilled. I'm sure during the time of David and Solomon, people thought, well, this is it. But constantly they were reminded, no, this is not it. The Messiah has not come. He's coming, but he has not come and all is not right. They died. All of these died without receiving the promise. Yet they kept on believing that God would fulfill all all of his promises to his people, including freedom from all war, freedom from sickness and final deliverance from death. But God made the Old Testament saints wait For the one who would perfect all who believe the promises of God. Not perfect the promises of God. They're perfect already. He will perfect the ones who believe the promises of God. That's Jesus. In fact, the something better that God has for us is all wrapped up in Jesus. The gospel is better news than the law. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. Faith is better than works. In Jesus, we live and move and have our being. In him, we are free from the power of sin in our lives. In him, our lives have meaning as we share the good news of the gospel with those whose only hope of eternal life is to believe Jesus. In Jesus, we have the hope of the resurrection, knowing that one day we will live with unadulterated and uninterrupted joy, free from all pain, all insecurities, all suffering. One of the things that I I think about with heaven 
is, you know how it, when life is really good, that little thought creeps into your mind. Well, this is nice, but I wonder when it's going to, you know, turn. That thought will never enter your mind in heaven. Everything is perfect, and it's all because of the suffering of Jesus. Whatever is negative in your life right now, do not despair. There is something better. Have faith. Now, what are we supposed to do with all of that? Well, we'll get our answer next week in Hebrews 12. Let's bow for prayer. Father, um, Lord, we recognize the number of times in our world and in our lives and in the lives of others who believe in Jesus, you do miraculous, wonderful things, healing people from diseases that are fatal but aren't because you intervene. Lord, you deliver people from destruction. You deliver people from economic, uh, relational, things that we think will never be made right. It's almost as if a resurrection has occurred in relationships and in other places in our lives where we hurt, but you intervene. Lord, when you choose not to, we trust you the same as when we see this great deliverance. Make our hearts believe. You have done so much for us and we are so weak and we're such failures <clears throat> at the things that you have called us to do. And yet in Christ, you see us as perfect. In Christ, we have all that we need for life and godliness. In Christ, we will live forever with you. We are so grateful for the one who is so worthy of our trust and so worthy of our praise.